we had gone through all the books of the Bible, and then we stopped that, or we got to the end of Revelation. So, like, what are we going to do next? Well, then, um, the idea was then to look at some different characters of the Bible. Because not only we have Scripture that gives us Revelation, gives us God's Word to us, but then there's also characters, personalities, people in the Bible that are given to us for a, a model or an example or things that we can look to to see how God revealed Himself to them, how they interacted with God, because some of the problems with humanity are not new problems. They've been going on from the Garden of Eden and they still continue today. And so through looking at some of these character studies, um, you get an idea of how God relates to us and then how we should relate to God. So we've looked at Adam, we've looked at Eve, um, we looked at Noah, we looked at Abraham, and tonight we're going to look at the character of Isaac. So next Wednesday night, Lord willing, will be on Jacob because these are the big three. So the last time we were together, we were talking about how God came to Abram and called Abram and said, Hey, you come follow me, you be obedient to me, and I will make you into a great nation. And last time we were together, we looked at all the stuff surrounding Abram, who then later became Abraham, and the lessons that he has. So what I've been trying to do with all of these is to come to these character studies, whether it's male or female, and ask the question, Who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? Um, so kind of asking the question, a, a biographical or maybe even an obituary type question to begin with. Let's just look at the facts and let's look at who they are. And then ask, well, why are they in the... Why are they given to us in the Bible and why would we know about them? Because there's a lot of names that are given in the Bible that you and I don't remember, that we don't think about, that we don't keep up with. So why would this be a name that we would know and what would we know them for? Then hopefully, maybe some lessons about the, the, the model, the, the example they have for us that we could look at as an example or something to mark our lives. So when it comes to Isaac, you got Abraham called by God. Then you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob. From Jacob, you've got the 12 sons. From the 12 sons, then you now have the 12 tribes. And from Jacob and his 12 sons, and be 13, so he had 67 or 57 other people in the household. They were the ones that then came into Egypt, and that is where the population of the Jewish people, the Israelites, then exploded, and that was what was then, after 400 and some years, now you have over 600,000 that are leaving Egypt, heading now to the Promised Land, which is where we're at in the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings. So when it comes to the character, the personality of Isaac, sometimes we, we get lost because we have Abraham, and we see all the things that God does with Abraham, and then sometimes it's easy for us to just skip right over to Jacob, because Jacob, the twelve sons, the four wives, all of the things that surround him, and sometimes Isaac is just kind of lost in the middle. So what do we know about Isaac? Who was Isaac? Give me some ideas. Give me a long night. Give me a long night. All right. So we know that Isaac was the only child of Abraham and Sarah, right? Can't say he was the only child of Abraham. 
We talked about that the last time. Abraham had other children, right? But we can say that he was the only child of Abraham and Sarah. So when you have a when you have a couple, and especially in that culture and in that time, it would be expected, it would be assumed that they would have numerous children, multiple children. But the fact that you have a single child and you're the only child of that couple um, kind of maybe lends itself to some personality, maybe lends itself to some background. Um, so we know he's the child of Abraham and Sarah, the only child of Abraham and Sarah. We also know that he was the husband of who? Rebecca. Rebecca. Did he take other wives? This means no, and this means yes. <laughs> okay? The Bible doesn't, as far as my understanding, the Bible doesn't give us any indication that he did take other wives. So the only thing that we really know is that he had one wife, and that was Rebecca. And then, so he was the only child of Abraham and Sarah. He was the husband of Rebecca, and then he was the father of who? Children. Children. Children? Jacob and Esau. Did he have other children besides Jacob and Esau? No. No. Maybe he did and the Bible doesn't record it, but when you get down there, and I should have marked it, when you get down there to where they bury him, and this is uh, chapter 35 and verse 29, it just says, and his son, I'm sorry, Genesis, Genesis 35 and verse 29, it says, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Now, could he have had other children? Maybe. Could he have had other daughters? Maybe. But the text doesn't give us any indication. So if you just read the plain reading of the text, all you get the idea is that you have Isaac, the only child of Abraham and Sarah, had one wife, Rebecca, which in that time you could see them having uh, more than just one wife. I mean, his son Jacob had more than one wife. His son Esau had more than one wife. His father, after Sarah died, took another wife. And so it wasn't just completely unheard of of having more than one wife. But here you got Isaac. So he's the son, he's the husband, and now he's the father of Jacob and Esau. And we have no other type of record that he had any other children. And that was something that would have been uncommon in that day and time. That you would have only had two sons. And if you remember, they were twins. Not saying identical. Obviously, they were not identical twins. But I don't know. What is that? You call that fraternal? When they're twins, but they don't look alike? Is that what they call it? Okay. So these would be considered to be fraternal twins. Now, does anybody remember the age of when Isaac got married? Anybody? No, sir. No, sir. Close. It is divisible by three, but it was not a hundred. See, I remember. No. So he was forty. So this is in chapter twenty-five and verse twenty. You'll see that Isaac was forty years old when he married Rebecca. You may think, well, Spence, why does that matter? Well, because in that culture, to wait that long to be married was not that common. I mean, you think back to the birth story of Jesus, and you have got Joseph, who was probably in his late teenage years, and you had Mary, who was probably in her middle teenage years, all of a sudden coming together and having a union. Tucker and I's grandparents. My grandfather was 16, and my grandma was 15 when they got married and started having kids. So the idea 
understand that you've got someone in their 40s um, or who is 40 years old, you kind of think about, why did you not get married earlier? Well, if you read through the story of Isaac, you realize there just wasn't a lot of options for Isaac during that time. So he gets married at 40. Does anybody know when he had kids? At what age he had children? 86. <laughs> Close. <laughs> I wasn't there at the time. You weren't there? I, I understand. So if you go to chapter 25 and verse 26, it says Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. I just think this kind of stuff is interesting. So you have Isaac, 40 years old before he ever gets married. Then he is 20 years married to Rebecca before they have ever have children. In fact, in the preceding verses there in chapter 25, it says that Rebecca was barren until Isaac prayed for her, and then God allowed her to conceive. So 40 years old, gets married, 60 year olds has kids, and then how old was he when he died? 180, okay. So that's out of chapter 35 and verse 28. Tells us that he was 180 when he passed away. So that would mean that once he had kids at 60, can you imagine living 120 years with your kids? I mean, that's a, that's a long time. So if you look there in your Bible, you get over there to... Ah, uh, blah, blah, blah. Was it chapter 20, 21? Genesis chapter 21 is the birth of Isaac. But then you go for quite a while in just looking at the life of Isaac before. So that's the end of chapter 35. All of that is covering, but it's not all about Isaac. So we ask ourselves, ask ourselves a question. Well, who was he? Only child of Abraham and Sarah, the husband of Rebekah, the father of Esau and Jacob. Kind of think about how maybe he lived his life and the differences of there. I mean, you think about uh, another couple of generations and you now have got Joseph and he is now in Egypt, and now don't quote me on this, but he's around 21 years old when he interprets dreams for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gives him a wife. And so it's like the idea that they didn't all wait that long to get married, I just think it's kind of interesting. So why do we know Isaac? Well, he was to be a sacrifice. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so we know that because that's a that's a, a Bible story, right? Of God coming to Abraham and saying, "I want you to sacrifice your son." So that's one of the reasons why we know him. Yes, ma'am. What's another reason why we know him? Okay, so if you look at Genesis twenty-six, God had made a promise to Abram, and God said to Abram. Abram, if you follow me and you do what I say, then I will bless you. God restates this promise to Isaac. Now, why, do, why does that matter? Well, because it wasn't just a promise given to Abram. It was given a promise that started with Abram, when then came all the way down through his family. So you'll see in chapter 26 how God reiterates that promise. Something else that we know Isaac for is the way that he became married to Rebekah. Does anybody remember that story? And to his servant uh, back to his back to his family in the Adoram, and he had to choose a wife from there. Right. 
Yeah. So Abraham, Abraham's sitting there saying, I, I need to find a wife for my son, but I don't want to find a wife for my son amongst these pagans and these godless fearing people. And so I don't want there. So he gets his servant and says, go all the way back to my home country, find a wife and bring her back. And there's that story about how the servant goes back and finds Rebecca and Rebecca's brother Laban, who Jacob later on comes in contact with. How they, they finally agree to let him go. But so the, the text gives us this idea that Isaac is just walking through the field. Here comes the camels and the servant and Rebecca, and she gets off the camel and they come up and they meet for the first time, and that night they're married. Love at first sight. Love at well, I don't know if it's love at first sight or just those are the only two options. I mean, <laughs> she didn't have another option for him and he didn't have another option for her. I don't know. But I think that is just interesting. I don't know, I was probably 15, 14, 15, and I was in Atlanta, Georgia on a 4-H trip. And we were in this big, monstrous hotel. And I remember we were in there and there was a whole lot of um, foreign men in the hotel. Most of them were from India, some were from Pakistan, but a bunch of foreign men. And so we're riding some of these elevators together, and I start asking about why, like, why are they all here? Is there some convention? Is there some big conference? And he said, no, we are all here because they are doing the arranged marriages in one of the big banquet halls. So all of the Pakistani India parents would bring their daughter and their son to this big hotel, this Hyatt Hotel or something, and they would be off in the ballroom, and the families would be making their negotiations and making their trades and barterings in there. And so you have all of these young men that are like, better get it out of our system before we get hitched. And so they're just they're just partying their heads off, and they're just playboying it, if you will. And they said, we come here, and uh, mom and dad then select for us a wife, and while we're here, we have a big ceremony, and we get married, and then we leave with the woman that mom and dad selected for us. Here in the U.S. In the U.S. Now this has been a couple years ago, Mr. Ronald. <laughs> But I just thought it was fascinating. I mean, it was a cultural thing. But I mean, I, I would think you'd be more in our country than, than over here. I mean, there's a lot of Indians here. They keep the traditions when they come. I've been to one of those things. Have you? Talking about. It's weird. That's what they're doing. Did you have to wear a dot and a real red over your so I think it's fascinating when you think about some of these some of these arranged marriages, you know. And when Tucker and I were younger, I remember my mom saying that we were going to have to observe a courtship where we strike eye onto a young lady, and then we have to go talk to that young lady's father, and then like you know we have to do this like was it the the, uh, the quiet man, you know, where John Wayne had to be escorted around everywhere. I mean, so it was like my parents like you're not just going to go out and and just date. Free Willy, we're not doing all that. You are going to be courting, so she comes to our house and you go to her house and all this stuff. And I was like, no, nope, I don't, I don't think that's the way we're going to roll. But my parents had this great idea that they were into this courtship. So one of the things when we think about Isaac and why do we know him? Yeah, we we immediately jumped to the idea that he nearly got killed by his father, and that's kind of the big story. But there's some other elements to the life of Isaac that are unusual. 
or that maybe we give us pause to think about some of the some of the assumptions that we make. Um, he was promised that that promise from God to Abraham would continue down through him and through his lineage. Then you know, the way he got married to Rebecca was something that would be considered today to be odd and very unorthodox, and yet um, he it, it worked. But then there was also something else that we see, and this will be in chapter twenty-five and verse twenty-two. Another reason why we know who Isaac is is because of the conflict. The conflict that plagued his marriage and plagued his family um, from the time he had children at age 60 all the way through the rest of his life. That conflict was the two boys. It says in verse 22 of chapter 25, um, let me back up here. Uh, verse 21 and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah his wife conceived and the children struggled together within her and she said if it is thus why is this happening to me so he went to inquire the Lord and the Lord said to her or so she went to inquire the Lord and the Lord said to her two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve of the younger. And so then, as you continue to see the narrative play out, as Esau and Jacob are born, they are constantly fighting with one another. They're constantly in competition. And they're constantly trying to butt heads. And they're constantly in a, in a state of conflict. That's because they didn't know who was going to know first. That's why they're heads. <laughs> heads. But there was just a lot of conflict. And so one of the reasons why we know Isaac is because of the conflict that ensued between Jacob and Esau. If you go to the book of Exodus, you will see where the Edomites. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So from Jacob, you have the descendants of now Israel. And then Esau was the Edomites. And the Edomites settled south of the promised land. So you will see this later on in the book of in the book of Exodus, that when they leave Mount Sinai, Moses and all the Israel, the Israeli nation, when they leave Mount Sinai and they head northeasterly up to the promised land, they get to the land of Edom and they ask the land of Edom to let them pass and the Edomites say no. And Moses tells us in the text that he said, hey, we're kindred. I mean, we're, we're long lost relatives. And they said no. And then later on, God says, Moses and Joshua and you all, you all go down there and uh, put a whooping on them because they refused to let you pass through there. I mean, there was conflict in the womb, there was conflict outside the womb, and there was conflict way after Jacob and Isaac, or Jacob and Esau, had already passed. There was continual conflict within the Isaac home. There's one other one I want you to think about. And this is in chapter 26. So God comes to Isaac in chapter 26, verses 1 through 5, and says, Don't go down to Egypt. Stay in this land. Don't leave anywhere. I have a promise for you, and I have a promise for your descendants. But then it says in verse 6, So Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, Gerar is not exactly all the way to the southwest, to where Egypt is, but it's not exactly up in the promised land. It's almost like he had kind of come down to an in-between area. Settled in there, verse 7, And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Now, who else 
has done that. My brothers. <laughs> Who? Abraham. That's right. So remember last time we were talking, Abraham did it twice, right? He did it when he got to Pharaoh in Egypt. Okay? And he did that. He lied to the Egyptians and lied to Pharaoh. And who else did Abraham claim that Sarah was his sister too? Anybody remember? Anybody remember? Going once, going twice, chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20? Abimelech. Abimelech. Thank you. Okay, so Abimelech. So, Abraham was there in the land of Gerar. Where Abimelech was living, said, Hey, Sarah is my sister. This is Genesis chapter 20. Alright? So you get down here to chapter 26. Alright? And it says in verse 7, Isaac says about Rebekah, She is my sister, for he feared to save my wife, thinking uh, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Now, what does it say in verse 8? When he had been there a long time... Abimelech. Now, the question is, is is it the same Abimelech? Well, you will find commentators and Bible scholars that are on both sides of the aisle. On one side, they say this is the same Abimelech that Isaac had lied to, or that Abraham had lied to, so Isaac and Abraham have now both lied to the same guy about their respective wives. Some people um, will look at this and say that he is either a son or a grandson of Abimelech, and they just carried the same name down through there, and so it wasn't the exact same person. I don't know. It's the same name. Alright, so if you're of the idea that this is not the same person, maybe a, a, a grandson or a son, I don't think you're in error. If you want to say it's the same person, you're not in error. The Bible just says that it was Abimelech. So it's the exact same thing right here in Genesis 26 as we see out of Genesis 20 where you have Isaac then getting down to a place that God had not said, hey, go there. He had gotten outside of the will of God, and when he got there, he lied about his wife. Similar to last time. Can you just imagine the conversation between him and Rebecca? So it tells us later on, tells us later on, uh, verse 8. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. Now here's a question I have. Why in the world would Rebecca be chummy with him if he was carrying on this charade that she is my sister and not my wife? That's one of the questions I've got. I don't know about you, you know, maybe sometimes you have different questions that come in your mind. But like when I'm reading the Bible, I'm thinking, why in the world would Rebecca be just chummy chum up with him and just laughing out, you know, laughing out in public with him when you're like, you're a liar and you're lying about me and you're leaving me up, you know, to be taken by a weirdo and here you are. Now you're trying to, you know, sit here and have fun. These are just some of the things that just kind of mull through, (coughs) mull through my head. So, Isaac lies around Rebekah and is found out in the similar vein that Abraham, his father, was found out. So why do we know about Isaac? We know about Isaac for multiple different reasons. 
multiple different stories that you might have heard in a sense class. You might have heard on the radio. You might have seen on TV. Um, many things that Isaac's life either uh, was a duplicate of Abraham's or things that we can relate to in our lives. So we think about who he was. We think about why do we know him. Any other things that come to your mind of why we would know who Isaac is? So let's move to the last one. What lessons does he teach us? So we think about who he was. We think about why do we know him. What lessons does he teach us about either God or teach us about ourselves? Don't lie about your wife. Don't lie about your wife? Okay. That's one idea. Excuse me? She said, don't lie about your wife. Lie about your wife. Okay. Okay, is that all right, Alan? I just didn't hear you. All right. That's your accent. Oh, Chip's in there. We see right off that it shows how faithful God is. Yes. Because he was not sacrificed. Right. Sometimes we'll use some train wreck. Sometimes we can make such a mess of our lives that we think, well, God can't possibly then use us. And then yet we get examples of like Abraham or we get example of Isaac. And we're like, hey, if God can use them, God can use us. And yeah, you're exactly right, Miss Shelley. When you get over there in chapter 22, you have this lesson of submission. And the Bible doesn't tell us how old Isaac was. I don't think Isaac was the man who was in charge of his own household too well. Because his wife and Jacob were able to team up and to trick him to steal the birthright of the older brothers. They caused all kinds of things to It's the first thing I had written down. What about the lessons? Is and the way I put it down here on my notes was the danger of silence. And where I where I coming at that from is you're exactly right that Jacob and Rebekah schemed to steal the birthright away from Esau. And that story is laid out for you there in uh, chapter uh, 27, I believe. Um, Laid out there for you. And so, let me just kind of give you the Reader's Digest version. So, Isaac, he can't see very well. He's pretty much blind at this point. He calls Esau in and says, hey Esau, you go hunt some game. Bring me some back some food. I'm going to eat what you have hunted for me. And then I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to, um, since you're the oldest, and uh, you're pretty much my favorite. Well, Rebecca had her favorite. That was Jacob, which that's the danger of favoritism within families. Jacob was a mama's boy. Jacob was a mama's boy. That's right. And so Rebecca overhears it. She calls in Jacob and says, hey, we're going to trick your daddy, which is another problem right there. All right. So the scheme is that the plot is hatched and it seems to be successful. And so Jacob gets the blessing. Um, 
Isaac is satisfied with the meal, but then the Bible tells us that as soon as Jacob had left, here comes Isaac, or here comes Esau from the field, makes the food, comes in, and announces to his father he's ready, and that is when the whole plot is discovered, and they realize that they had been tricked. So now here's the way my mind thinks about this. Alright, so you have Esau, and he's fuming mad, and he decides that after his dad Isaac dies, that he's going to kill his brother. And this is down in chapter 27, verse 41, verse 42. You'll see this where Esau said, well, once dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Rebecca hears this. At this point, it was obvious that that Isaac knew about this. And yet... There's nothing given to us in Scripture that Isaac ever addressed the deceit. He never called out Rebekah. He never called out Jacob. It was almost like this whole thing happened and this is not just a small matter. It wasn't like you let the second child get a bigger piece of the pie than the first child at at dessert after supper. This isn't one of those things. This is a monumental shift in such the way that you get later on in uh, Genesis chapter 32 and as Jacob is coming back this is chapter 32 and chapter 33 as Jacob is coming back from Laban heading back to the home country they say hey Esau's coming to meet you and it's been how many years later? I remember? Been 21. Right? Because he served 7 years for Rachel, then he gets tricked and it's Leah. He serves another seven years for Rachel, so that's at 14 years. And then he serves another seven years for the livestock and the flocks. So it's at least 21 years that he's been gone, and yet whenever he hears that Esau's coming to see him, even after 20 years later, he's still scared. Scared, 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 scared. Because that... Isaac went along with Rebecca's idea to send Jacob away. He didn't even... Say, no, he has to be held accountable. He said, yeah, let him go ahead and go. That's right. And that's something that, you know, I I sit there and look at it and go, did he say something? Well, the Bible doesn't say he did. Well, I don't want to say, well, he did not say something because the Bible says, the Bible is completely silent whether he did or did not say something. So I don't want to say it. I, I don't want to read too much into it. But yet, when you get down there at Exodus 27, and uh, you get down, let's say, to verse 46. Esau decides to take a wife from the, the, the pagans around them. Didn't make Rebecca happy. But, of course, this favoritism con- controversy is going on and on and on and on. And so it says, Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. And if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So she is whining to Isaac. And instead of Isaac looking at Rebecca and going... You're deceitful. You lied. And it's not okay. What, is, what does it say there in chapter 28 and verse 1? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan, Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So it's like Isaac then sends him away with a kiss on the cheek. And that boggles me. That 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 just and there's a pattern. There's a pattern that we see in Abraham, 
when it comes to the strife and the conflict that is happening in his house between Hagar and between Ishmael and between Sarah and between Isaac, that conflict that doesn't get addressed, that then continues to fester, then you see the same conflict uh, being uh, festering within Jacob and Esau and it doesn't get addressed and it continues to fester. The same thing when it comes to Jacob and his family as they are on the way back. Remember they stopped there at Shechem and Jacob's daughter Dinah gets raped by Shechem there in the country and they say, hey, you know, we're going to make it right and Jacob finds out about it but Jacob doesn't do anything about it and so then remember which two sons went in there and killed all the men that were involved with the raping of their sister. Anybody remember who that was? That's right, Simeon and Levi. So you have, so that's why, and I know I'm going off a lot of tangents, but that's why Judah, even though he's the fourth son, the birthright goes through Judah because Reuben was passed over because Reuben slept with his daddy's concubine, Jacob's concubine, so he defiled the bed. And then you have Simon and Levi were violent to the people of Shechem as they were trying to recover from the circumcision. They go in there and they just kill all the men. So that's why the birthright jumps down to Judah because those three had disqualified themselves. But when you have this conflict coming to Jacob's home, Jacob doesn't do anything about it and we see how it continues to fester. You fast forward from there and you get to David. King David. His oldest son was who? Absalom, right? He has some other kids. He has, he, he has, uh, oh man, the names. Uh, Tamar? No? Tamar? Yes? No? No? Who's? Okay, so he's got, he's got the Absalom, he's got the boy, and he's got the daughter, right? And even though they're step-siblings, they're not, uh, they're, he, they got the same daddy but a different mama, and one of the boys ends up raping one of the daughters. Remember the story? David hears about it, and David doesn't do anything. Absalom, years later, goes, not going to happen to my sister, kills the brother. I mean, just conflict in the family, and you never see David address it. That's probably because there's sin in those men's lives from previous. I mean, sure. lied about Rebecca not being his wife. And then she's like, okay, fine, you want to play that, then I'll play you. And so, same thing with David. I mean, there was sin in his life that came before, you know. Right. All of that. So, yeah. So, I just, I put down here, you know, a lesson that it teaches us is the danger of silence. You know, sometimes, sometimes we need to be careful that we so easily pass things over. Or we just assume things. And there's things that are happening right now culturally that we can be quiet, but it's not going to go away. No. It's not going to change the trajectory. So sometimes we get lulled in this idea, well, if we just ignore it, the problem will resolve itself. The problem doesn't resolve itself. It just continues to grow or continues to be a problem. You come to my house, Jalen and I's house, and you look at one of those little black-hearted sinners that are running through our household, and one of them is sitting there, and uh, that behavior at two, at the age of two, that behavior might change. But the heart condition left unaddressed will continue to be a problem. Even if the behavior changes, it's still the same heart condition. Does that make sense? So the problems at age two, left unaddressed, are only going to get bigger and worse as...
as they continue on. So I look at some of these parents and they've got these little precious black hearted sinners in their house and they're like, oh, well, they're too young or they're too ignorant or they don't know anything. No, they do know. And if you don't address it, it is just going to be worse later on down the road. It's just, it's not going to get better. It's just going to be a bigger problem and a bigger problem. And so now they've got this um, parenting techniques, this, you know, positive reinforcement parenting techniques and some of these. And if they work, great. I have not had as much success as other people with positive supporting, positive thinking. Sometimes it just has to take a little bit of painful motivation to get some attention. Sometimes that's where we come down to. But it's the danger of silence. When we are quiet, the problem does not go away. It just continues to raise its head and continues to cause problems in our homes. So the first lesson that I had wrote down was the danger of silence. The second lesson that I had wrote down was reminding us about the favor of God. So if you go to chapter 26, and this is talking about Abimelech, and I'm not trying to go name and claim it or prosperity preaching on you, but if you think about the favor of God, think about how God was treating Isaac. It says in chapter 26 and verse 12, and Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. It was like this guy Isaac. Not because he was so good looking. Not because he was so smart. Not because he was perfect and never made a mistake. It's because the favor of God was on him and God blessed him. I'm a firm believer even today, that God blesses obedience. I'm not saying that you go out and you say, God, I believe that you're going to give me a brand new catalog and God's going to bring you a brand new catalog. No, I don't think it works like that. But does God bless obedience? Yes. And would I prefer to have on any any given day of the week, would I prefer to have God's favor over man's applause? Yes. Because over and over through Scripture, we see when the favor of God comes upon a person, that whole person's life is enriched. I'm not saying it becomes trouble-free. I'm not saying it becomes painless. I'm not saying it becomes challenge. Uh, There's no challenges and no problems that come up. But what I am saying is, is when the favor of God gets upon a person, that person's life becomes blessed. And that should be something we should be seeking for. That should be something that we should be desiring for. God, I want your favor to come down upon me. Not so that I can get my brand new Cadillac, not so that I can get all the money, or not that I can get healed of a certain infirmity or sickness, but God, I want your favor on me. And so we see the favor of God and the effect the favor of God has. And there's another one. And this goes back to chapter 22 in Genesis. And this comes back to one of the ladies that said it. But the sacrifice, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. So God comes to Abraham. Abraham is how old whenever Isaac was born? Anybody remember? He was 100. Alright, so he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. He had waited for how many years from God said, you're going to have a son. How many years was it before he actually had the son? 25. 25. 
right? So he came to when Abram was 75 years old and said, you're going to have a son. 25 years later, here Isaac comes on the scene. It doesn't tell us how long after the birth of Isaac to where then God tested Abraham. And this is in chapter 22 and verse 1. We don't know how long it was. Most of the Bible scholars, Bible commentators will say that Isaac was most likely in his teenage years. Late teens. teens. That's what what I've heard as well, Charles. So they say he's in his late teenage years. And now God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, what stands out to me, a lot of times people will give focus in Abraham's obedience. So then Abraham gets his servants and he's got the fire and he's got the wood. And they take off and they get to the point that he leaves the servants. Then him and Isaac go up on Mount Moriah and they got the wood. And it talks about how Abraham lifted up the hand to then strike Isaac and to kill Isaac and at the very last second is when God called out and said do not harm the boy and that story goes on but what they talk about less is Isaac and I'm sure this is not a new concept for you all but let's say hypothetically speaking this young man is 17 years old His father, Abraham, is 117 years old. Isaac is 17 years old. And can you just imagine, uh, let's say here, I'm going to go to chapter 22 and verse 9. When they came to the place which God had told them, told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now if you read in the preceding verses... Isaac looks at his dad and says, Dad, we have the fire and we have the wood, but where is the sacrifice? And it tells in the preceding verses that Abraham looks at his son and says, God will provide the sacrifice. So it wasn't like Abraham had let Isaac in on the story until we got the wood laid out. Oh, I need a sacrifice. Oh, you. I wish the Bible had given us more detail about the conversation. So in my sanctified imagination, this is just kind of a possible idea. Get the wood laid out. Isaac is like, Dad, you know, got the fire, got the wood. You said that God would provide the sacrifice, so what, what are we doing now? And about that time, Abraham looks at his son and says, Son, I need you to turn around so I can bind your hands. And you can imagine the son going... No, you're not. And it's not like you've got an adult father and you've got a little toddler boy that you can force them or make them. At this stage, let's say he's 17 years old, he is fully physically enough to run. (laughs) That would be option one. To fight. That would be option number two. Or just say, you're not doing it. Right? But the Bible doesn't give us any indication. And then at some point, after he's bound, Abraham puts him up on the altar. Now, sometimes when you think about altars, we think about this large, you know, belly button, high, big, wooden edifice. Well, that's kind of hard to think about considering Abraham carried the wood up there. All right? So most, more, more than likely, it's pretty ground level. But at the same time, you're Isaac. Now, I don't want to more, read more into it than is there. But at some point, he was bound. And he was put in place. And at some point, you got to imagine that Isaac is thinking, I am getting ready to die. Not because of anything I've done. Not because of anything my dad has done. 
but because God has said to do it. Now here's the way that I read into this passage here in 22. Isaac did not run. He did not fight back. Isaac was submissive to the plan and the will of God. That's the way I look at it. Now you might say, well, Spencer doesn't say that he was submissive to the plan and will of God. I know that he doesn't do that. But you just see the character of Isaac beforehand. You see the character of Isaac afterwards. And that just kind of lends, lends me to believe that when Abraham looks at his son and says, I need to bind you and you're going to be the sacrifice, you can just imagine Isaac going, well, this really stinks. This is not on my plan today. I did not really have any intention of this. But at some point he submits to the request of the Father, He allows Himself to be bound, allows Himself to be put in place, and you can just imagine He is watching the knife being raised up, knowing that in the next moment the downstroke will come, and that's it. And neither Him nor His Father knew till the knife was up, ready to be thrust down, that God was going to say, Stop. Now here's why it's a lesson for me. Because there's been some things that God has told me to do or that I felt God impressed upon my heart to do that I thought, that is nuts. And maybe you've been there where you feel like, hey, God is telling me to do this or God is leading me to do that. And you sit there and you think to yourself, no, no way, impossible. There is no shot that I'm going to do that. And I wonder if anybody in this room has God said something crazier than what God told Abraham. And yet Abraham and Isaac were willing to be obedient to God. I find that as a tremendously convicting picture of what faith and submission and obedience looks like. God said do it and they did it. Even when it didn't make sense even when it was hard to understand, even when they didn't realize how it would come, come turn around, even when they didn't realize how it would play itself out, they're willing to be obedient and faithful to God. And so when you look at Isaac, Isaac sometimes gets lost between Abraham and Jacob. But the picture of submission, the picture of obedience, the picture of faith. And then I look at my life and I go... How does my life compare to theirs? It's a challenge. A lot of times my obedience is based upon what is safe and comfortable and familiar. A lot of times my obedience is based upon what other people think. A lot of times my obedience is based upon my emotions or my feelings. A lot of times my obedience is based upon not God's Word, but my opinions. And sometimes obedience doesn't look like what we think it will. Sometimes obedience just looks like what God says it to be. And sometimes we forget that we do not know the path and the direction of God. Only God does. And so that's why we need to be ready and willing. When God says move, we're willing to move. What other ideas? Any other ideas? Lessons? That kind of shows a picture of Christ too. It does. It does. In fact, the big fancy word is a Christophany or a. Christology. Uh, do what? Christology. 
Christology that is studied by Jesus, but a Christophany is what they would say would be a representation of Christ before the incarnation of Christ. So, for instance, they would say when you have the the uh, the angel and the two other angels come to Abraham before they went to Sodom and Gomorrah, somebody would say that's a Christophany where you see Jesus being represented in that picture. So, so they were doing Christ's life in their obedience. Yes. And so there's, it talks about whenever he was eight, um, God had Abraham or um, circumcised him. So was he the first circumcision recorded? Abraham and his servants were actually the first ones recorded in Scripture. And I, off the top of my head, I want to say that he was that Abraham was ninety years old. Uh, Somewhere in there, he was like 90 years old when God gave him the uh, mark of circumcision. And so that is somewhere right in there. He was 90 years old or somewhere. And so, um, yeah, I mean, so Abraham and his, his servants were the first ones to be circumcised. So and then Isaac and then proceeded. Started, so Isaac as a baby would be the first. Yes, sir. So that started the tradition of circumcision. Yes, sir. So there's a... It's just the mark. It's it's just that was the the sign of the covenant of God, and which I, I find it to be incredibly puzzling. Like God, why would you choose that to be the mark? I mean, like you know, like well, like with hogs, pigs, show pigs, you know, feeder pigs, whatever. They'll notch their ears, all right, and that's a means of identification. You take a cow or even sheep, and you'll put the ear tags in the ears or. Sometimes I've seen dogs and sheep and they'll tattoo inside the ear. or, or they, They've got the, the chip now that they implant. I mean, there's ways that you can mark somebody. I mean, put a stud in their nose or put you know, earrings in their ear. And God's like, nope, we're going to make the, mar- the, the, the evidence of my covenant with these people. That mark will be circumcision. Well, isn't there a difference between clean and unclean? It does have to do with hygiene and cleanliness, yes. But who's going to go around showing that? <laughs> Thank you. It's personal. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, Steve and I meet each other on the road, and I'm like, are you Jewish? I am. Can you prove yourself? <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a odd way to do it. You know, what a, what a weird, you know, because for years, well, I mean, still today, there's a lot, there's a lot of people that assume that, Black people, as a color, was Cain. So you go all the way back to the account in Genesis, whenever Cain killed Abel and God said, I'm going to put a mark on you so that people know that you are cursed. There's a lot of people today that believe that that curse was, is he made Cain black and Seth was white and that's why you have black and white people today. I don't hold to that. I don't hold to that idea. But that's, there's a lot of people out there that have that as a mark, if you will. So I always wonder, like, all right, God, if you're going to make a mark that's going to say this is evidence that these are my people, why would you use that as the mark? I mean, close off one of the nostrils, and so all of everybody's walking around. All the all the Gentiles that are not God's people have two openings in their nose, and all the you know Israelites only have one opening in the nose. I mean, there's lots of ways that you could do it. That just seems like a very delicate way. <laughs> well, they marked women that were yes things that they weren't supposed to be doing. 
Yes, but that was never the sign of God. The, the, the circumcision of women was never meant to be a sign of God's covenant. It was more of an abusive treatment of slavery or indentured servitude. But it, So God used that to say, this is a evidence that you are my chosen people because you're not going to voluntarily just say, hey, I got an idea. Let's take a sharp piece of rock and injure myself. I mean, you're not just going to... But I just, I mean, it's one of those questions that I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully asking God one day. Like, why that? Of all the other options in this world, I mean, why that? Obedience? Very unique. Very unique. Other thoughts? The word ham that was condemned. Always compared with Ham that was black. We're seeing his brother naked. Ham or Shem? I don't know which one. Ham. He was the one who went to the tent. And then came back out and tattled? Yeah. Snickered? Yeah. Could be. Could be. Heard a preacher here a couple months ago said they were all black. Just uh, we all have different levels of melanin, which I mean, so it's the genetic difference between black, yellow, white, all the different skin colors, supposedly. I mean, we're 99.9% the same genetically. It's just the, the level of melanin in our skin is going to dictate, you know. How long you can light the sun? Yep. Would Moses white black? They, yeah. They, they said that she was a... Yes. So. Other thoughts?